You're now tuned in to Life Song Radio, a weekly podcast dedicated to accurately studying the Word of God in a comprehensive and biblical manner. Listen in as hosts Phil Ramsey and Blake Shankle dig into the Word line by line, verse by verse, leaving no stone unturned. Grab your Bible and your notebook and get prepared to study the living, breathing, active Word of God. Now, here are your hosts of Life Song Radio. Welcome to another episode of Life Song Radio. My name is Blake Shankle, and there is no Phil Ramsey tonight. Phil is absent from our Bible study, and that's okay. He has had some prior commitments, and he is going to be out this week, but that's okay. I think I can handle it, hopefully, rightly dividing the Word of God. So I'm glad that you've joined us. As always, make sure you check us out on lifesongradio.com or visit us, visit us on our Facebook page at Lifesong Radio. Also, look to join the Christian Podcast Community app on any of your podcast platforms. You can check this out, and we're on there as well, along with about 40 to 50 other podcasters of like minds as well. So check that out. If you, as always, if you have any questions, Look us up at lifesongradio01 at gmail.com or email me, actually, and we'll respond as quickly as we can. lifesongradio01 at gmail.com. But let's get to our Bible study today. Uh, we're in Romans chapter 14, starting a whole new chapter. We've been in Romans chapter 13 for quite some time. What a great chapter that was. I know it edified me well. It, it, it rebuked me as well. And uh, so I'm hoping to take that into my life and hoping to be able to apply that. But we're in Romans chapter 14, and uh, looking at today... Uh, the topic of Christian liberty. Weak Christians, strong Christians. That's what we're going to be looking at. We're going to be touching upon that, and what we're going to be introducing that today, kind of this law of liberty, if you will. And next week when Phil comes back, we'll be able to discuss it a little bit more about this Christian liberty. But Romans chapter 14, we're going to be in verses 1 through 4. I'm going to read out of the New American Standard Bible. Paul says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. And he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. As I said, with these verses, we enter into a brand new section of Scripture within the book of Romans. And this area really focuses upon the matters of Christian liberty and the matters of the conscience. And specifically, what is prohibited or what is not prohibited by the Scriptures. Uh, adiaphora is the term that you might hear, and, it, and it's a, a lot of times used meaning disputed things. In verses 1 through 4, we're going to see here, Paul focuses on foods, diets, uh, foods that are prohibited or not prohibited any longer by the Old Testament dietary laws. And in verses 5 and following, the issues is on holy days or festivals that were in the Jewish tradition. And then he'll deal, deal thirdly with wine or drink, one that's probably been hotly disputed in a lot of our Baptist circles, if you will. But we're going to deal with that, and we're going to look at that and see what Scripture says, and we're going to try to make heads or tails of it. So we'll look at that in verse 21. You know, some things are right because the Bible says that they're right. And, and other things are wrong because the Bible says that they're wrong. It's pretty clear, right? God speaks to what is right and God speaks to what is wrong. And we see that in, his bio, in the Bible. But some things the Bible neither condemns nor it approves. 
we look at these as gray areas or areas of conscience, if you will. And that's the focus of today's scripture and going forward. Let me turn my volume off, if you will. If not, it'll keep dinging at me. But throughout the New Testament, kind of just set this up, if you will. Throughout the New Testament, there is a call for the purity of the church. Right? We see this in Matthew 18 where Jesus instructs the disciples and ultimately the church that if a brother is in sin, we are to go to that brother. Right, If he continues upon that sin, we are to go bring another brother with us or sister with us and rebuke him in that sin, exhort him to repent of that sin. And if he continues to not do that, we're to tell it to the church. Right, And we're to put that person outside of the church. And what Jesus is doing here is he's instructing the church that sin needs to be dealt with inside of God's, uh, inside of Christ's body, and 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 uh, because it can be debilitating, it can be crippling. That's what sin does within the body. It's a cancer, and it needs to be dealt with. Paul, in the fifth chapter of his first letter, really the second letter to the Corinthians, but in First Corinthians chapter, uh, well, in in um, chapter three and chapter four, in there, he says, "Just a little leaven will wind up leavening the whole." lump, right? That's what it does. Just a little bit of sinful influence will wind up being a pervasive effect like leaven does to a lump of bread. Paul, in his second letter, he continues in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, he says, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh, perfecting holiness and the fear of God. Again, Paul calling for the holiness of the church. The Lord and Paul say is, says that before we come to the Lord's table, that what? We're to repent of our sins, right? We're to examine ourselves, examine our lives. I know that's what we do at our church. Each Sunday we come and we examine our lives. Before we even uh, start our, our service of worship off, we, we examine our lives. We sit before the Lord and we examine those things and we repent of those sins that, that, are, that, that have been in our lives, right? And we take inventory of our lives and, uh, because sin is the greatest danger to the church and, and we're to be aware of it. And ultimately, this is what Paul has been doing in the last two chapters of Romans, right? In Romans chapter 12 and in Romans chapter 13, Paul has ultimately been dealing with the holiness of the church, the purity of the church. He has given us these exhortations in which we are to be doing these things. Here are the things that we're to, to do, right? How we're to set ourselves apart from the world. What we're not to look like uh, or what we're to look like in the face of a a world that is dark and depraved, and uh, what we're to look like before, how we're to act before brothers and sisters in Christ, how we're to submit to government officials, how we're to act in front of unsafe people, and how we're to love them, right? And then last week we talked about <clears throat> that we're to put off and put on, right? Put off the dirty clothes and put on Christ. We're we're to we're to awaken Christian. It's time to rise. We're to put off the, as Paul calls it, the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. And, and so we're called to live pure lives because sin is not the proper response to justification by grace through faith, right? Righteousness is. And so the church must be pure. We have to deal with that. That's why the church has discipline. We have the confessions of our sins. <clears throat> we, that's why we examine the scriptures and our lives submit to it, and our lives are ex exposed by it, right? It is a mirror in which we're to see ourselves, and we are to be laid bare before the Word of God. 
That's why we pray that the Spirit searches our hearts and reveal those things that are deep down, those sins that, are, that we don't even know we're aware of. That's why we exhort one another in love and rebuking in love where need be. But to be frank, though, that's really not the only problem with the church that the church faces today. Not only is it sin that we face, as far as in that category of dealing with it and, and being holy and righteous, but another core, a category of problems that the church faces, and if it's not dealt with, it can really cripple the church and disunify the church. And it has the potential to create sinful situations, and that is the relationship between strong and weak Christians. I said Christians. Yes, I did. It's Christians. And uh, it, it's strong and weak. That's where we, we, we see those things. And, and, and in the church, if, if we don't get a hand around those things and how we're to act with one another, it can really fracture the church from within. Brothers and sisters pitted against each other. And that's where we see our text today. The matter of hand that, that is at hand today is, the, is, is food. And next week we'll see the days and the festivals, and, and then we'll look at drinks that were dividing the church at Rome. It sorts out really into two different groups in the church that are wrestling with these issues, the two groups being the strong and the weak, the strong brother and the weak brother. The church at Rome was filled with a lot of different people from various backgrounds, some of which right, come out of a pagan lifestyle. That would be the Gentiles who were used to offering up meats to idols. Right? They come out of this idol-worshiping lifestyle, and some come out of the Jewish culture, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. And because of these differing backgrounds, this is has the potential to create a lot of problems. Remember, you're bringing in Jew and Gentiles. You're bringing in the dogs with the Jewish people, and it's it's really a tough sale at this point with the church. It's really a tough time for the church because they these two groups have really never got along. So what you have is, that really, to be honest with you, there's nothing different than today in our own churches, Right. What we have is there's there's uh, uh, differing levels of maturity within Christianity. You have those who are just now entering the faith. You have those who are have been in the faith for 40, 50, 60 years who are well versed in Scripture. But there's no different because they're saved by the grace of God. Right. You have those who come from different backgrounds, those who have been in in uh, heinous relationships those who have been at the, the top of their game, right? Kings all the way to vagabonds. So we have this wide range into the family of God. And what that causes us to do, because we continue to live in this in our flesh, right? The unredeemed portion of our body is the flesh, and we carry that until the day we die. But what it does is it causes a, a it can cause problems. It can, can create a discord within the church. And you know, maybe it's that I don't like the music, right? I've heard that my whole life. I don't like you're you're singing these hymns too much, or you're singing this secular or uh, this this modern hymns too much, and it's just always a fight, right? Or we didn't do it at our church like that last time. We got to do it like this. Well, their hair is too long, or or maybe they have too many tattoos, or we didn't sing enough of this, or the preacher didn't preach enough of this, and you, you see how we do that? We faction ourselves, and, and I'm, I'm a culprit as well. There are old Christians holding on to traditions that the Bible doesn't state that we need to hold on to, right? There are preferences of all kinds, uh, preferences in dress, in music, in diet, in entertainment, in programming, all kinds of things. So and just as well as it's true for us, it was as well as true for the early church, and, and, and here we have what we call non-moral preferences, right? In other words, it isn't necessarily a sin issue, and of it in and of itself, 
to do it or not to do these things because we're talking about is, is these things that God doesn't uh, inherently uh, speak to in Scripture. It would be the gray areas of the matters of conscience, like I've already said. So from chapter 14, verse 1 to 15, uh, verse 13, Paul deals with this whole matter of unity among strong and weak believers. Um, look at our scripture here today. He says here in verse 1, Now accept the one who is weak in faith. And Paul says the one who is weak in faith. So this would be the, the younger Christian, Christian, right? This would be the weak Christian. And then he says, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. I'll come back to that. But one person has faith that he might eat all things. That person who eat all, eats all things would be that person, that brother who is strong in the faith. The weak brother would be the one, he says, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. That would be the weak Christian. The strong believer is the one who doesn't make distinction among days. The weaker brother does. And when the matter of wine in verse 21 comes about, it would be the stronger brother who feels he's free to drink wine, the younger brother who feels like he can't or shouldn't. So that's the issue upon the table. And these principles set forth by the apostle can extend to other pertinent matters today in which Christians wrestle with. Examples being, uh, can a Christian dance? Or can we say a good Christian dance? Can a good Christian smoke a cigar? Or can a good Christian go to a movie? Can a good Christian have a tattoo? Or can a good Christian play cards? They answer these questions, though not specifically, but... Uh, uh, the principle behind the answer to these questions is found here in this scripture. So it comes down to a matter of what does the scripture say? Where is your conscience upon these matters? And how are we to love someone who has a different view of matter, of this matter, not specifically spelled out in scripture? So look here. Paul says, now accept the one who is weak in faith. We see here that this is addressed to the one who is strong in faith. Right? He's saying, accept this person, this weak brother. Right, The one strong in faith must accept the one who is weak. And this is a command due to it being in an imperative mood. And it's also in the present tense in which we're to constantly, constantly be doing this. Right, He's speaking to brothers and sisters in Christ here. The word weak, when he says, accept the one who is weak, means feeble or sickly. Paul isn't talking about physical weakness here, but it's a spiritual weakness. It's a young in the faith. It's not knowing the things of God. It's knowing enough to be saved, but it's not knowing the fullness of Scripture. All right, there, there are differing levels of spirituality, right? Or spiritual maturity, might I say. When he says in faith, there's a definite article in the original before faith, and it really says the faith. So if you look at the original Greek, it says the faith. So he's weak in the faith. Not in faith, but in the faith. It's a distinction between the subjective faith and the objective faith. The subjective faith is your trust and your commitment to something. But your objective faith is your doctrine. Right? So what is in view here is the objective faith. The faith, weak in understanding the Christian faith, therefore he is also weak in walking with the Lord. Doesn't mean he's not saved, but he's weak. So he's weak in truth, he's weak in doctrinal matters, he's weak in his faith. Therefore, he has a shallow knowledge in what is permitted and what is not permitted. We can define a weak Christian as a believer who, become, who because of some preference, maybe because of his past experience or orientation, but a believer because of some preference cannot understand, because of some preference cannot understand and fully enjoy his freedom in Christ. But this is addressed to the stronger brother. And he is to welcome the weaker brother into the faith. He's saying, basically, don't belittle him. Don't mock this brother. You're to love him. 
That's what is flowing out of this, right? It's a Christian love. I mean, it flows very well with chapters 12 and 13. The stronger is to show love to the weaker. That's what we're to do that is strong in the faith. We're to love this weaker brother. We're to bring him alongside. We should welcome him with open arms and an open heart. There should not be a wedge between us, right? That's driven between the brothers and sisters in Christ. So what he's saying is the stronger must rise to a level of, of even greater maturity in Christianity. And, and, a, and, a, and a brother who is strong and that has a strong Christian maturity will accept this, right? He'll accept the weaker brother, and he will bring them along and help sanctify that brother or sister. Paul's already addressed this in some part in chapter 12 and 13, verse 9, actually, in chapter 12, where he says, love must be free of hypocrisy. Detest what is evil. Cling to what is good. Here he goes. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence. Nevertheless, Paul sorts this out for the church in Rome. That's what he's doing, right? There must have been some issues here in the church that he was dealing with. So at the end of verse 1, he says this, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on opinions. What does that mean, right? So the stronger brother is not to pass judgment upon the opinions of the weaker brother. In other words, he should not have the opinions of the weaker brother. He should give him time to work through his faith and to grow in it, right? He doesn't say convictions, he says opinions. These are just opinions, and they're not rooted or grounded in Scripture. So let's work through those things. Let's be the bigger brother, and let's work through those opinions and those strongly held opinions and really the strongly held things of the conscience. The word opinions comes into the English language as the word dialoguing. And the inference here is that the weaker brother is dialoguing with himself. He's working these things out in his mind. He's within his own mind debating himself. He isn't debating it with Scripture. Right, because it's not found in Scripture. But, it, but with his own mind, he's deliberating with himself. So Paul's saying while he's deliberating, while he's sorting this out, while he's dialoguing with his mind uh, and sorting it out, don't be hard upon him. G- give him time to develop these opinions because, because guess what? You were probably once there as well. I know I was. I know this is convicting to me because I'm, I'm like a dog to a bone at times. Phil will tell you a lot of times is, is, man, we're hammers, and a lot of times we see nothing but nails. And all we want to do is just nail, 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 nail. We can't do that and not ultimately be fractured. And that's what Paul says is quit nailing the younger nails, the weaker nails. right? Be, be gentle with them. And on opinions, right? Not, not, not stuff that really goes against Scripture, right? Not, we, we'll get to that a little later. But look at how Paul clarifies this, right? In verse 2, Paul makes the division within the church. He begins with the one who is strong in faith. He says this, One person has faith that he may eat all things, but the one who is weak eats only vegetables. The one person Paul is talking about is the stronger brother in faith. And when he says eat all things, he means those foods that were once prohibited in the Old Testament, dietary restrictions, You'll recall that we find those in Leviticus chapter 11 and Deuteronomy 14. And what he's saying is, is that the stronger brother knows that these restrictions are no longer, no longer binding on the New Testament Christian. Right? Those things have been passed away. Those things have been fulfilled in Christ. The Jews, they've been raised. What have they been raised to do? They've been raised their whole lives to do what is kosher. You've heard that word. It, it means to do what is right. Anything that is kosher to the Jew is right. It's fit. It's proper. It's in its place. And there were two things that were very, very dominant within the Jewish culture and, the, and, and ultimately in the category of what was kosher. One was the diet and one was the, the special days. So special diets and special days. Do you remember Daniel? When we find in Daniel, 
when he was taken into captivity into Babylon and he was told he was supposed to eat of the king's meat. Well, he was supposed to eat all of the food the king provided. In chapter 118, he says, I'm not going to do that. His conscience would not allow him to do that because he was, he was Jewish, right? He had been given the law by God and he was, obtain, he was, he was, he was uh, staying with those dietary restrictions given to him. The same thing for Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, and they wound up in the furnace. They were not going to compromise their Jewish convictions. And these laws, their diets, and the days were given by God. So that's a little bit of the Jewish background behind this. Then you have the Gentiles, right? And they were used to pagan feasts and pagan festivals. Many involved drunken, gluttonous orgies, which left them vaccinated very often against certain things that as Christians they would be free to do. But because of their experience in the past, identifying those things with paganism, they wanted nothing to do with them. They wanted to stay far away from them. And we see these scenarios really play out in Acts and Galatia and Corinth, and Paul addresses these things. One example would be Peter. Right, you think about Peter, who was rebuked by Paul. We see this in Galatians chapter 2. Peter is in Antioch, right? With, and he, he was eating with the Gentiles, and he wasn't concerned with the dietary restrictions of the Jewish culture. There was no problem there, right? He had already settled it out in his mind. But when there, it, the, the scripture says, when certain men came from James, meaning from Jerusalem, remember James being the older brother of Jesus and him being the pastor of the Jerusalem church, mostly Jewish, the Jewish church, they come up to Antioch. And when they arrived, Peter withdrew from those Gentiles and he separated himself from the Gentile food, right? Uh, among other things, fearing what? Fearing man, fearing the Jews, afraid of what they would think and might do. So Peter openly denied the liberty that was in him Christ. And Paul, he, he, uh, it was no question because he had been clearly given the vision in Acts chapter 10, right? Remember he was with Cornelius. The vision come down from heaven. We have this, this curtain and he sees these animals and, Paul, and, and God says, arise, Peter, kill and eat. There's nothing that's unclean or clean that you can't eat. So Peter is clear of this. He understands this. The, the, uh, and even in the life of Peter, the Lord began to remove the significance of the Sabbath. So Peter knew these things, and Paul rebukes him for such a silly retreat from the liberty of Christ because all he did was confuse people. And because Peter did this, disassociating with the Gentiles, the Jews did to who had come from Antioch. They, they, they did this to, to Peter, and, and Paul says his fracturing of the church because this just helped the Jews hang on to Judaism all the more, right? See, Peter's doing it. Hanging on to the laws that they long ago had been abrogated by Christ. I don't have time to go over it, but just real quick, the Gentiles had problems as well. First Corinthians, Paul, we see him dealing with the issues of Corinthians, struggling with idols that had been, or meat that had been offered to idols, right? And the stronger brothers were causing the weaker brothers to stumble. Paul ultimately gets to the point that if meat or foods are going to be, are going to be offered and they're going to offend the brother, then I'm not going to eat them any longer because they offend him, right? And that's not what we want to do to the brother, this is Christian liberty, living itself out, working its way out. So we see Jews who hung on, maintaining their Jewish tradition, dietary laws, Sabbath laws. There were some Gentiles who were very uh, hung up on maintaining their past traditions. And the potential in the church was for all kinds of conflict because, because of these particulars. And these were the issues facing the other church. There, were, there was immature, weak faith. And, and guess what? It's always called weak faith. The weak person is always the person who does not understand his freedom. 
He doesn't believe he's as free as he is. He thinks he's bound to certain uh, preferential external tradition when he's not. And mainly it was the Jewish people, right? Hebrews really deals with this. The whole, the whole book of Hebrews really deals with this is Christ is better. Right? Christ has fulfilled these things. And ultimately the strong believer is the one who understands he's not bound by these things. Now, I want to make, make crystal clear. I'm not talking about moral or sin issues. We're not talking about that. Obviously, Christian freedom is not the freedom to do wrong. It's not a license to sin. For we talked about that last week, right? It's freedom from externals, from traditions, from preferences, from rituals, from ceremonies, foods, etc. So back to the text. The, The strong brother has faith that he can eat those things that were once prohibited under the Mosaic law. Notice the end of verse two. But we see the weaker brother, he eats only vegetables. He feels like he's still under the dietary law, most likely a Jewish person right here he's speaking to. He's so strict and narrow that he won't even eat the meat that was allowed up under the Mosaic law. Note the word here, if you've got an NASB, your word, uh, uh, mine has an italicized only. That just means it's not in the original. It's supplied by the translator. So it could actually be that he eats meat that was not prohibited under the Old Testament law, as well as he primarily eats vegetables. So that's what we see. The cry, but we understand this is that Christ has, he's died upon the cross. The object lesson of the Old Testament has been removed, right? That's clear in Scripture. The old in Christ, you are free to eat meat and free from the Old Testament festivals, free from sacrificing lambs, etc. These things have been filled in the cross. Paul, look at this 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 guarded attitude that Paul has in verse three. He issues a warning regarding the attitudes of both the strong and the weak brother. So he says in verse three, the one who eats, which would be the strong brother, is not to regard with a contempt the one who does not eat, which would be the weaker brother. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. The stronger brother is not to regard with contempt or or really utterly despise or ridicule the weaker brother because of his belief. For he is weak in the faith and needs to be taught. This is what we as stronger Christians need to do is come alongside our brothers, uh, right? And, and to teach him these things of the faith. He's to be gentle with his brothers and sisters in Christ and, tear, and not tearing their heads off and nailing the nails, if you will. But it's a two-way street, right? It's not that the stronger brother shouldn't look down on the weaker brother, but guess what? Paul says the weaker brother shouldn't have judgments, a judgmental spirit towards the stronger brother because he feels that he has freedom to eat and drink Certain things. Don't look at that. He's doing wrong either. Uh, look, look what he says. The one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. So the stronger brother is exercising his liberty in Christ to eat certain things, and the weaker brother is not to judge or to criticize those things. Now look here, verse three, in the verse three, Paul gives the reason as to why the mutual criticism is out of place from either side. He says at the end of verse three, for God has accepted him. This is actually addressed to the weaker brother, though it applies to the stronger brother as well, for both are accepted into Christ. But in fairness to the context, the end of verse 3 and verse 4 as are directed at the weaker brother. The strong tend to despise the weak, and the weak tend to condemn the strong, correct? So the weaker brother should accept the stronger brother in the exercise of Christian liberty, for God has accepted him. Who are, to, who are you is ultimately what he's saying to reject whom God has accepted. You don't get to make that judgment, right? Come to verse four. Who are you to judge the servant of another? Again, addressed to the weaker brother. Who are you, the weaker brother, to judge the servant, the stronger brother, right, of another servant or another, right? Another referring really to Christ. We're his servant, right? We're his bond servant. 
He's saying, mind your own business. Who do you think you are? Who are you to evaluate another man's slave? And the answer to this rhetorical question is, is it's not you, wicker brother, right? You're to judge upon on the, you're not to judge on that account. God is the judge. Each man must do what the person believes God is in his conscience is leading him to do for God is the Lord over the conscience. It's the instrument within every person that tells us what is right and wrong. Now that the conscience ultimately needs to be informed by the word of God and some people's consciences are weak or than others because they have not been properly taught. But it is the breaker brother who needs the most help here, the easiest offended. He is, he has the most problem with Christian liberty. And Paul says, Paul says, who are you to judge? You've been listening to Lifesong Radio. You can follow us on Facebook and YouTube. And if you want to continue to study throughout the week, check out the resources available on our website at lifesongradio.com. See you next week for another episode of Lifesong Radio.